Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. Every spring, the Film Society of Lincoln Center and the Museum of Modern Art co-present the new director's new film series. It's a reliable showcase for filmmakers on the rise who should be better known and who often reflect intriguing larger developments in contemporary cinema. This week, we'll discuss the latest edition of this Bellwether series. But first, we have an interview with a past New Directors New Films participant, Albert Serra. Serra's new film, The Death of Louis XIV, opens this Friday, and it's the cover story of our March-April issue. Last fall at the New York Film Festival, Serra spoke with Dan Sullivan, assistant programmer at the Film Society, about directing the French New Wave icon Jean-Pierre Lyot and the challenge of grappling with mortality on screen. Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Dan Sullivan, a contributor to Film Comment and a programmer at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. And today I'm joined by the director of Death of Louis XIV, Albert Serra. Uh, hi, Albert. Hi. Hello. What came first for you? Um, the desire to make a film with Leo, with Jean-Pierre Leo, to make a film about death or to make a film about Louis XIV? It's difficult to answer this question because my desire, it doesn't count when it's the moment to decide which project I will do. In fact, I am more based on uh, other people's desire. I mean, uh, people around me, surrounding me, my company, or in, uh, no, or maybe also from the pragmatic point of view, which film will be easier to, to develop in short term. So... Here, I don't know. Yeah, as the beginning, it should be a film that it should be a performance. Then it was canceled. And then we said, oh, why not? Why not to do it in, in film? But mm, maybe it was more the desire of the death. You know, the desire of the, this really close up to somebody that is going to die. Um, I don't know. I, I had in mind the, the film of Dante Lazarescu that I really loved at that time, some years ago, and I said, oh, why not, don't we do it, you know, in a more eccentric way, the, the same kind of thing, uh, but with, with 14, and and then, okay, there was the Memoirs of San Simon, but in fact, it's a, it's a paradox, because what is beautiful in the Memoirs of San Simon, it's not in the film, because there it's beautiful, the how to say, for the psychological portrait, the, the you know, the insight in the fights of power in the court, all these things, the political, uh, the problems, you know, the, the, all the groups inside the court and you know, all the vanity and how, you know, the, the people living there make some decisions based in what and, you know, always the hidden motives, you know, behind everything. But then you see the film and you see the face of Jean-Pierre you know, looking, I don't know, or asking for something the way he does it. You know, the, 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 this subtle way, full of sovereignty, with all this ambiguity and richness, and you know, literature is impossible that it's, that could describe that. You will need pages and pages, and never with the same complexity that you have when you see this image. What I love in Saint-Simon, and Saint-Simon is not in the film. Uh, and then it rests, okay, the, the idea of death that I really love, this idea of mixing the, the grave side of death and the banality of death also, no, and the facing death in representation in front of others, and facing death in total intimacy. And this, these two, and this was the, the at the beginning the key point of the of the main idea no? of the, of the film. Yeah, you've treated death time and again in your work. 
your previous feature, uh, mm. Story of My Death, where uh, death, there's a romantic mm. um, element to yeah, it. Yeah, a symbolic element, no? Yeah. no it's, it's a wider element. It's like a symbolic approach to death. And here it was totally the opposite, no? To start with a really organic approach to death, you know, mm. the really... Un- and the, the most materialistic way that this is the body, no, the end of body, of yeah. the body. That is the, the most uh, clear and scientific approach to death. But I also I found it interesting to think about the difference between the version of death that appears in this film and in um, the version that's in in honor of the knights, which is of course the quixotic death, yeah. the ad- adventure, the adventure or journey toward death. Yeah. Whereas this is death is uh, interminable waiting. Yeah. Well, uh, it's, uh, the, the 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 waiting of death. You know, is what I always thought that it creates a natural dramaturgy, because I don't know, it's so relevant. Everything you do gets an amplification, and everything, everything of of your decisions or your slight movements are the last ones. So this is already a dramaturgy when you know it that these movements, these wars, this uh, whatever will be the last time that you will see this. And the actor of Honor of the Nice, as you mentioned, died. And for me, it's a very strange feeling because, well, it's a common feeling that everybody has, no, when with dead people that are really appreciate. But you try to to think about him, and it's impossible, you know. It's, you regret it, you know. He will never come back, and this is already a drama in itself. This is already a relationship between you, between him, and between you or your own thinking about him. So all these sensations are already on the table all the time. And I don't know, I, I like this. And I like this. It's moving. It's as simple as that. It's moving. As my films don't have a lot of moving things in the classical dramaturgy sense, well, if you approach that, it's already something. And, and uh, one thing that uh, certainly enhances uh, the banality of death mm. in Louis Fourteenth is the way that you render uh, the stupidity of the court and mm. of uh, the king's physicians. Mm. Um, could you talk a bit about your approach to filming stupidity? Well, uh, it was, uh, in fact, it was a, a, a coach, an important coach, uh, football coach. I don't like football, but in Spain there was an f- important football coach from Barcelona that was a very lazy guy. And he said once he, they asked him, uh, what do you think about death? Because he's already a little bit old now. Uh, what do you think about death? And he said, I never worry about that because yeah, then you die and the day after everything mm, continues the same way. So there is no worry. There is no possible worry. You, your death will change anything. So this paradox, it's what, uh, and to do it in a very, I don't know, in an original way and not in a dramatic way, using the plot or using that, this ambiguity. For me, it's shocking. And in the in the film, Jean-Pierre, really, because he sometimes he's very aggressive in the film. He's full of anger because he doesn't want to die. You know? And he's aggressive against destiny. Or, well, I don't know what. And I like that. Yeah, and he did it very well in the film. Even sur- uh, it surprised me, the quality of the play. Uh, every time, I, uh, I don't see the film very often now. But when I edited the film, it was quite surprising the deepness of some, or not the but the mystery, you know, that puts in some moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to get to Leo's performance uh, in depth in, in a moment. But you brought up the system of representations that are at work mm. um, within the court and within the film. I detected that your approach to rendering period details mm. was different here than in your other films, all of which have been uh, historical uh, in one way or another. Mm. But 
those have sort of you know a, a looser a different way of, of yeah. rendering history because i was a little bit scared of not being you know because this is a very iconic subject in France. So the film was a French production on, I don't know, Risk. Uh, this started when we had decided to do the decor because we couldn't shoot in Versailles, obviously. And then we said, what do we have to do? We have to make a copy of Versailles, an exact, no, precise copy of Versailles. So we have to do something completely different that we don't care because it was easy because we already have some castles that it was cheaper to rent. But we were a little bit scared of not being faithful to the iconography and that people will reject emotionally will reject the film just because you know the, the room was completely different of what they have been seeing during ages so uh, i mean my approach here was uh, i didn't want to take the risk of being too of being too original in that sense so the the main thing was to create a decor that could be remind and could be you know faithful to what we have historically but mostly should be organic should be really uh, not a decor but a life room a lively room where really Jean-Pierre appropriates of the spade not only the the bed but all the space and all that is really really something organic and in fact I, I am very proud of it because at the end the film it's super super organic and realistic all the decor all the the, 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 the historical aesthetical historical approach it's very very I think intense until the point that uh, I was in Versailles not some time ago and I felt that the Versailles was Disneyland it was the decor and my, my decor was the real room mm -hmm. you know it's because you feel it you fulfill it with something that is real life and in present time uh, uh, sense so it's always the same point that you have to be respectful but a little bit iconoclast just to be original just to fulfill with life I think with Honor of the Nights and Birdsong specifically I found the approach to rendering history as being more like Warhol a yeah. little bit and into reverence yeah. and here I've, I don't know if you've heard this before I, I, I thought of Roger Corman in a way yeah. sort of the as always you're working with a limited budget and you sort of uh, you maximized it by uh, but I don't I don't feel you know I, I, I don't want to know when I watch films which is the budget or without the limitation so in my films is the same a little bit you know I, the ambition I have ambition in the sense first scenes honor of the nights you know that I said we have only these cameras or whatever but it should be really epic this was the ambition at the time in the film should really have epic atmosphere you know and now I'd like to talk about Leo how did he come to be involved with the film it was the very beginning for the project on the Pompidou the commission was, was already involved uh, then okay we lost contact during two years or three and then uh, French producer decided to go ahead with the project but in, in as a feature film and I don't know I respect him a lot as a, an actor obviously but uh, what's, this was not exactly the main point the main point is this as I respect him a lot as a person even for just for the five for four or five encounters for six previous encounters before the, the film but I realized that I was in front of somebody really and really funny you know uh, you saw him now in the picture you know he has always uh, unpredictable reactions yeah. sometimes unpredictable sentence sometimes uh, I don't know it's 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 not but always with candid cad, candor yeah and innocence you know but real not he can be very um, I don't know very um, smart but at the same time and what I still don't understand about him very innocent yeah 
it's, it's it's really well you met him now and you start to you know to understand how he is but it's very for me and for me this is also it's part of the film mm-hmm. and okay i think that i did something that in this case was it was all in all my previous films no to focus a little bit on the person because I always work with the person, primarily with the actor and with the character. These three dimensions of the same body that is in front of the camera. And, okay, people focus on the, on the character. No? But I take profit of, and I like, because it's more fun and it's more crazy. And, no, it's Warhol style also, no? That he thought that he will create the new standard of star system and the new standard for complexity in film just because he was using the person, the actor, and the character. But, okay, then this became too complex, or he made it maybe, maybe in a really extravagant, explicit, and non-refinated way, in a very rough way, and maybe, you know, but now we can, with this experience, we can try to you know, improve this, and try to do it in a more subtle way. For example, uh, here, in the middle of the shooting, Jean-Pierre starts to be being you know, jealous of the other actors. I don't know why, because, you know, I, I know why. All the actors are jealous of the other actors in general, but here in a, in a more, you know, more hard way. No, until the, the point that sometimes, you know, an actor approaches as the servant or the doctor, you know, trying to give him something or to say something or whatever. He made this beautiful gesture with the hand, you know, just said, you know, putting them apart. Just not, do not, do not approach, you know, just stay away you know with the hand it's a beautiful gesture but in fact there was so beautiful and so full of sovereignty and so full of intensity not because the character was there saying that no 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 i don't want this but it will be banal like if any import it doesn't matter which actor you know plays this role but it was just because the actor you know, this is the person being filmed, you know, consciously and with all the vanity, all the, you know, all the struggle in their mind, you know, against the other actors and then towards the, uh, the, 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 the goal of offering his best image. You know, this actor, this is the vanity of this actor, you know, was furious against the other actors because just because they are mm, taking part of his no, as a main role or that because maybe he could steal some scenes or maybe, you know. So the intensity of this gesture and the, the real sovereignty or the real sense of feeling superior and of feeling yourself with the power of that you they don't really have to mix with you because you are the star in this film. This was the actor that was doing this gesture. It was not the character. Mm-hmm. He could never have this kind of intensity. Okay, then in the film we apply with this subtle edit I always apply to all my previous films and with really, you know, thanks to te- digital technology and the way I shoot and blah, 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 things that were not in the hands of Warhol or people from the past. So then you use all these things and okay, it's it works. And you see the character in the film because in the film you you just see the the character. You smell or you you know, you feel sensations of the of the actor and of the person. But you are focused on the character. But you you see something came it's, it's absolutely from the actor in this case, for example. Mm-hmm. And never, never, never uh, just the character or just the classical actor, you know, or just the filmmaker not using these resources could found an actor doing this with the same kind of intensity and the same kind of sovereignty that really comes from the inside. Mm-hmm. And the same from a job for the for the humor or for the for what I said, the innocence. There I worked really with the person. You know, because he's crazy, he's unpredictable. At the same time, he's curious. 
No, he's always curious like a child in some sense. Mm. And then, okay, but if you put this in the character, if you put it, you know, in a direct way, it doesn't work. It's too, I don't know, too too boring. You know, good people, we don't like good people. We prefer bad people, are more fascinating. But why don't you use this in a very small portion, you know, in the character in a, well, in a very subtle way, you know? And then it works. But in, I mean, in addition to to Leo's uh, humanity in the film, there's also uh, sort of necessarily there's the symbolism of 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 him as a as a historical figure. And your mm. films abound with historical figures. But I think this is the first time you've cast someone who is in his own right a, a towering figure in the history of cinema as a yeah. towering figure in the but history of the me, world. But for me, as I said before, it didn't count for me that I don't know. I treat him as all my previous actors. No, there is no no difference. Okay, maybe the first day it's not the same because you you know, but then gradually you know from the second day it's 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 the same, and I don't know no no this is not uh, I don't I cannot say it was more too respectful or that for me it was something impressive or so or so was something I wanted to include in the film. It arrived later because yeah. I really maybe maybe it's more on the side that it's not Louis fourteen. What interests me, maybe, in the deep, in the deepest way, but maybe the power in itself, mm-hmm. the absolute power, and because here there was a, a friend of mine who said he saw the film. I said, ah, we really feel closer to all the actors and all the plot around the king, the king, and we really feel that they are people like that. But you go, you you approach the bed, and you go on the foot of the bed, no, in front of the bed, and then what it happens inside the bed, it's more abstract. You know, it's more, you, know, you never know. There is no same kind of stability of the senses or the stability of the characters or the openness of the the characters. And the, no, then it's something more abstract. Mm-hmm. And it's true because so you never know what he's thinking, why, and well, how is he really, you know, or how is he really in face of the death? Because this is another question. You can be like this, but in face of death, you can change a lot. You know, so how is really and this is a mystery and maybe it's linked that the, the abstraction of power you know that, that power nowadays or uh, or or in the past also was an abstract you know without face was an abstract construction without face and I think that Leo with his you no know, the, the, all the the, the the subtleties of his of, of his performance he puts this kind of Abstraction without face of, of absolute power. In some sense, you know, I don't know. Maybe I am going. I am being too pretentious or going too far. But yet, I th- I think a little bit that it was not me who remarked that. It was a friend and said, "You never, you know, you feel closer to all other characters, but not with him." In some sense, it, it remains a mystery. Well, I think. I mean, it is. It is abstract. It's very in difficult a way. to do that with an actor, you know, because yeah. actors are working with senses, with previous senses, with previous informations, and you will never reach this point because all previous senses or previous information will kill. But with Leo, with his innocence, mixed with my system, at the end, the, 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 the mix of all these uh, these links you know, inside the shooting it, it gives a strange result. Yeah. I mean, it is abstract in a way intellectually, but it's also quite concrete mm. uh, centrally. And I think... Uh, Throughout in all of your films, you can one a spectator can really feel that sort of the dialectical tensions that are that are making uh, anything happen at all uh, on mm. the screen, and 
an inter- just an interesting uh, uh, dialectic that I picked up on here was the tension between Leo as an actor and uh, as Antoine Duanel or the guy from The Mother mm-hmm. and the Horror or whatever. Uh, but then that uh, counter counterposed to Louis the Fourteenth as as the king as a symbol and Louis the Fourteenth as a dying body. Yeah, this is one of the most beautiful and moving things no, of the film because as a symbol. I don't know, apart from the perukes, he's not playing in the symbol side. And I didn't want to play because in the symbol, it means that you are playing on the, on the, on the senses, on the previous senses, on, on all, the, all we already know about him. And I wanted to show something that we don't know yet. It's, this is the point of history because we only approach history because we know some details and we want to confirm these details. And we will never expect that history didn't happen as or it happened in a more complex way that than the information we already have and Leo was really in, in this play with the organic with the body with all this approach for me was much more important because when you have to deal with your own body I mean it's it's everything inside you <laughs> no and all the other things okay happen around but there is a, a real intimacy and, and you know when you when you have some pain, you try to explain people. You try to, you know, f- try to that people uh, will be uh, will have some kind of psychological solidarity with you, will help you because, you know, pain is something. Or when you really deal with your pleasure, even it's also another mystery. You no, know, when in sexual relations, when people have you know this pe- pleasure and the same kind of things don't give any kind of pleasure t- t- to to other persons huh? and there there is real no relation really intimate and, and and that doesn't go out of your body and i think that this An essential was, privacy yeah, kind of essential privacy exactly very good expression and then i think this is a little bit in the film if you have only this a little bit it's already a lot because you don't see it quite often so and visually it's not so it's not so easy to show this you know, these things that really happen inside of you and inside of your body and the dialogue between you and your body but then some of that is it's on the surface of his face and on the surface of his movements and on the surface of his reaction so I really love it mm-hmm. and I don't know it's very rem- I don't know how he did it in fact I think it's it's we should prize the editors of the film yeah it's maybe it doesn't exist Maybe it doesn't exist in reality, and even we think that it's something very organic that really goes out from the inside of the body. It's something that goes out from the you know formal approach on the edit. I don't know. I was hoping, if you're willing to share the, uh, your anecdote about uh, the list of the worst doctors of all time, because I think ah. this kind of cuts to yeah, the way it cuts but to this, the heart. But these arrive, these arrive by chance and after yeah. the film or during the edit, during the process of the edit, where they're checking on the internet because I don't know which sentence of the material, you know, when we are editing, we thought ah, this may, may not be true or whatever, and we, we put it on Google, googling Fagon, that is the name of the main actor, and first or second website, I don't know, said most dangerous doctors in history. And this was number two. Yeah. And for me, well, uh, but I like uh, to, uh, um, I like to know that there is also, uh, you know, that rich people have useless actors. I think it's good news to the rest of us. And I think, well, nowadays, maybe the scientific approach, uh, it's more powerful and the link between the scientific approach and economy it's more powerful because you no know, technology and the access to technology it costs money but then 
I don't know, maybe still, no? Uh, I, I know some cases of very rich people that, you know, fall down in hands of not we'll not put not bad doctors but not inspired doctors that day yeah. <laughs> what is what is also what is also important because and what is also understood from the very beginning because my only work with actors is that one look for inspiration inspiration of actors all my system all my methodology all my setup everything it's based on looking for this goal that when the actors are inspired and it means when they put on their faces, on their gestures, all this region that we were talking about before, that moment is really well recorded and recorded in the most, I don't know, moving way by the cameras. This, mm-hmm. my, this was my only point. So, and as I understand that there are a lot of days that actors are not inspired, I can imagine that there is a lot of days where the best doctors are not inspired. And it's really, it's really good news for us. And the worst doctor of all time was Hippocrates, uh, right? Hippocrates, yeah. Hippocrates because uh, essentially they said that everything he wrote, everything he thought about medicine, about everything was wrong. Yeah. Completely wrong. You know, so he he applied all this, all his knowledge to the people. I mean, it's completely the opposite of the yeah. modern science teacher. So it's interesting. It's a, it's like if Isaac Newton hadn't been, he was right about like one thing, you know, yeah. and everyone yeah. remembers the one thing, but uh, then there's alchemy. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. <laughs> ridiculous writings about uh, all subjects, no? Yeah. Okay, so it says that it's, uh, well, it's like my films also. You can be wrong or you can do bad acting during the whole process of but you, it's This was my philosophy. In fact, I said, well, we will shoot a lot at the beginning of the honor of the night. We will shoot a lot. For example, we shoot three cameras, I don't know, three or four hours per day. This is 12 hours. No, and we will be shooting during, for example, 20 days. No. Uh, of these 12 hours per day, three cameras, three hours or four hours, don't you think that you will be able to get four excellent minutes? You know, just four magical minutes, just four, you know, or just six magical minutes. So if you shoot 15 days, it's a 90-minute film. Mm-hmm. So I don't care about uh, all the other things, but you just need to be, you know, really have good things once. The final thing I wanted to ask you is if you would be willing to talk a bit about your next film, I Am an Artist. Yes, this is my most beloved project because it has to be a sum of all my knowledge. <laughs> Some craziness to pay homage to the actor Luis Carbo, who died recently, to really recognize the central, the essential role he played in, in showing me, not showing us, because it was really me in that case, uh, who really you know, realized the potential of putting fun and putting, you know, irony in the heart of what we are doing, you know, that and this, you know, can be amplified by formal ambition, by, you know, I don't know, plastic care, by, uh, I don't know, ambition in subjects, ambition in, in, in dramaturgy or whatever, but that this should be the most important element and that this will create in a style, you know, because it was not so, not so clear because because there wasn't the, the the digital technology no at the in the past so to mix really this subversive or this fun approach you know the, the, this ludic approach sorry with the extremely formal ambition to mix these two elements it was difficult in the past because there was no 
digital technology and all the material all you could do in the shooting was done in a very rough way because the, and then the edit should be rough also because there was no computers there was no the possibility of really critically judging all the images and the possibilities of combining and in a very very subtle way creating you know really things from nothing really f f creating a new fantasy but very precise very you know very coherent from nothing and you know, just to pay homage, as I was saying at the beginning, to this actor that put in the center of our of my style, no, this ludic point. I will shoot a film about I am an artist. That I about I am an artist. A film that is called I am an artist. That is about a young artist nowadays that starts to be a little bit successful. That a young artist, not like me, a little bit younger maybe, that starts to be a little bit successful in the contemporary world, and it will be a portrait of the art world and a portrait, a crazy portrait a mix of all my previous things but in an even more refined way and it will be a comedy so this is the first film i think from the very beginning that the the the, the, the comedy aspect will be in the in the heart and it will be about that about the role of art and artists in our society nowadays so you can expect quite uh, some fun and some well maybe interesting insights on what's the role about an artist nowadays or about success or about authenticity or about uh, you know because more with the internet and with all these vanity aspects of uh, social media what's the role no? what's the role of art inside of this this banality no <laughs> this real banality and uh, a little bit different of the banality of death of the death of Louis 14 so i think it's a no it's a beautiful project because the, the script i already wrote the script so i really <laughs> love the main idea of the film i will not talk about that now but yeah, so, well, okay, we'll see. Yeah, it goes without saying that we look forward to it. Um, all right, thank you, Albert. Okay, thank you very much. And now we shine a light on the sometimes mysterious process of film programming and what people mean by the term festival film. I'm joined in this discussion of new directors' new films by series programmers Dennis Lim and La Francis Wee and critic and translator Nicholas Elliott. Here's our conversation. I'm Nicholas Elliott, the New York correspondent for Cahiers du Cinema. I'm also a contributing editor for Bomb Magazine for film, and I'm an occasional contributor to Film Comment. I am La Francis Hui. I am a member of the Feature Selection Committee of the New Directors New Films, and I'm also an associate curator of film at MoMA. Dennis Lim, I'm the director of programming at the Film Society of Lincoln Center and a member of the Features Committee, uh, which I co-chaired this year with Raj Roy from MoMA. Thank you all for coming. So today we're going to be discussing uh, new directors, new films. Unfortunately, the festival will have ended by the time this broadcast, but perhaps this will encourage everyone to be extra impartial <laughs> about uh, the films we're about to discuss. It's sort of hard. Sometimes it feels a little hard to be optimistic about the future of film when you look at new releases and they're either live action remake that is totally unnecessary of a, a children's cartoon or, you know, it's just yet another film about sad people in Brooklyn. And yet there is New Directors, New Films, which is one of um, the Film Society and MoMA's longest running programs, I guess. 46 been, years. Yeah, pretty impressive. It's been the launching pad ostensibly for a lot of filmmakers from Europe, you know, your Fassbenders, et cetera, et cetera. So I would love to ask to the programmers, you know, when you're looking for films, not just where you're looking for them, but what makes 
a new director, a new voice, attractive or exciting to you and makes you feel like we have to include this in this program? I guess to answer the first part of your question, uh, where do we look for films all over? We track films that are playing the major film festivals. The process really starts um, in May at Cannes. We pay special attention not to the competition, which is sort of like you know the, all these pantheon names uh, that typically are in the Cannes competition. Obviously, aren't eligible for for new directors, um, which is a showcase for first, second time filmmakers primarily, uh, but also for filmmakers who haven't received very much exposure uh, in the U.S. But Cannes does have parallel sections that are useful. Critics Week in Cannes uh, is, is also for first and second time films. And then we, we just go through the year. Um, Locarno, Venice, Toronto. We usually have representatives from uh, the Film Society and or MoMA at, at most of these festivals. Uh, and then we finalize the program around the time that the, the you know the winter festivals are, are underway. Sundance, Rotterdam, Berlin. There's certainly films that have come from elsewhere, but those festivals that I've mentioned are pretty much um, the main like, hunting grounds for us. I should point out that there are six members of the selection committee, uh, three from the Film Society, myself, Florence Almazzini and Dan Sullivan, and from MoMA, La, Raj, and uh, Sophie Kavalakis. And we, in terms of what makes a new director's film, I, I don't think there's really an answer for that, or maybe there are many answers for that. I don't think we really look for a certain type of film. If anything, I think we have an aversion to films that we recognize as a certain type. Well, what would that be? What would that be? I think, I don't know. I think you can, you know, the, the, the term festival film can be used in a pejorative sense. I would say that I look for films. Do, do I want to see this filmmaker's next film is, is the question I ask myself a lot of the time when programming for new directors. Um, I want to have the sense that this film has been made by a person uh, that there is, as opposed to a committee, right. you know, and I, or, or as opposed to a lab, which increasingly is, uh, I think, pretty common. I mean, a lot of films go through screenwriting labs, you know, producing labs. I'm not saying that all uh, that all those films are, are bad necessarily, um, but you know, a film where the director's voice uh, and vision are discernible that take some risks. I'm not claiming that every single one of these films is like a radical, you know, like experimental, like risk-taking work necessarily, but you get the sense that this film was made by somebody who really needed to make it. Yeah, and I also think that there is an intention behind making these films, and I look for an honesty, and I, I cannot really tell you what it is, but sometimes you know that this film is made from something that is very important for the filmmaker and something very personal. And even when it is a formal experiment or innovative piece, you can tell that it has something very personal to do with this filmmaker. If you look at the selection, there isn't really a trend to speak of. I mean, I before I came here, I was wondering like how I was going to talk about the selection as a whole. I don't think there's a way for us to really describe the selection, and we weren't really looking for something to tie them together. That's sort of a cliche of festival coverage, where it's like, this year the focus is fun, blah, 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 blah. And it's usually, it's usually a very forced connection that's not true. 
So I wanted to talk about Arabia, which is a film that I think all three of you really quite enjoy. I guess, Nicholas, could you sort of like give a quick sort of summary of the film and talk about what qualities of it you particularly liked? Mm -hmm. So Arabia is a Brazilian film directed by two directors, Joao Dumont and Afonso Uchao, who both come from Minos Gerais, which is, as they describe it, a, a hard scrabble province of Brazil, close to Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo, but very different, a hardworking, tough area where there seems to be a lot of interesting film happening at the moment. Arabia, they've taken a, a young man who they worked with on Afonso's previous film, The Hidden Tiger, apparently a, a young man from the working classes, and they've cast him as a a drifter, a guy who's moving around this province from one job to the next. But they've told this story that I think has tremendous social consciousness in a very structurally unusual and attractive way. The story starts with a teenager who could be, if you watch the first 10 minutes of the film, you might easily think that this is going to be a, a kind of socially conscious coming of age story and potentially not that exciting. But at a certain point in the film, this, this teenager finds a, a notebook in which this other man, Cristiano, has written his story. And then the film goes into voiceover and follows this, this man's life and, and turns into, in my eyes, a real kind of ballad of the drifting life with mm -hmm. tremendous empathy for, and this is kind of a cliche of, of festival film making and festival film discussion, tremendous empathy for people who are not represented in political discourse, perhaps, and, and, and in art. And here they, they find a way of, of doing this, the filmmakers, that is artful, I think aesthetically relevant and exciting, and also just really profoundly moving. Um, their use of music, among other things, is is great. The film starts with a Towns Van Zandt song, mm. which is very attractive. And there's there's several scenes of uh, the character himself playing music, singing music. It's just a, a tremendously felt and lively film. Mm. I think what's special about this film is that you know all those things you described, those formal choices that you described, are very connected to the the politics and the ethics of the film. I, I think it's, the filmmakers have clearly given a lot of thought of what it means to tell a story of somebody like this, you know, working man. And I think to this, the structural device, this unusual framing device, and also the, I think the aesthetics of the film, the compositional rigor of the film is really impressive because you, you're used to seeing these kinds of like social realist narratives. The lives of the poor are typically told in a cruder, sort of like more typically realist style. And I think that there's something very moving um, about the the artfulness of the film uh, um, and the the importance of, of you know, I think this, the, the we had, um, this comes a, a across in the interview that Nicholas did with them on, on, on Film Comment, but also we had a good Q&A where they talked about the the literary reference points. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's it's quite unusual to hear filmmakers, you know, reference John Dos Passos and James, the title actually comes from James Joyce. It's a story in, in, in Dubliners. Yeah, I think it's it's a very it's it's a really impressive. Not a first film, but I think it's the first time they've worked together as co-directors. And there's a it's it's one of the most exciting uh, films in the selection for me. 
I mean, the, the film certainly feels very much like um, a piece of literary work. Mm. And uh, I find it a very bold choice for the filmmaker to use this poetic tone to convey the story of a working class man, assuming someone who is not very educated. And um, it is a political decision. It's like to give the peeper, this person the voice that you might not imagine. And um, I find it very interesting. I think the, the literary aspect is essential. What these these filmmakers are really questioning and asking themselves about is giving voice. How do you give voice to, to poor people, to underrepresented people? And the voiceover is it's a real feat of writing on their part because they did write it, though they wrote it specifically for the actor who plays Cristiano. What you're listening to throughout this film in this first-person voiceover is someone who's finding his voice. It starts with this guy writing, and we hear this, you know, I've never written before, I've been asked to write for this reason, and you really, it, it's a very convincing, very simple but poetic language that they find for this man, and you never question that it is coming from someone who could be in these circumstances. And there's a really beautiful contrast in the film, which is at one point, he meets a woman who's more educated than he is, it appears, or who, who has read more than he has, and they have a brief love story, and she writes him a letter. And her love letter to him is a, is a beautifully poetic, lyrical declaration of love that is equally convincing, but in a completely different level of discourse. And, and I think it, it really speaks to how gifted these filmmakers are also simply as writers and what Dennis was talking about, the influence that people like Despasos and Joyce, and I think they, they talk about Faulkner as well, has had on their work. Yeah, they also talk about how the title, they like how the title reminds them of uh, Arabian Nights because it's a film about narrative, it's a film about storytelling. You know, it's framed as one man's story, but his story is is composed of so many other stories within letters, as you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, dreams, songs, jokes. Uh, and I think it's, yeah, I think it's it's a really striking film. Glad, glad that critics have been responding to it favorably. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting to consider sort of in the history of Brazilian film in general, you know, because Cinema Novo, the aesthetics of um, hunger, those movements, again, were very much concerned with giving a voice to the, the underclass of Brazil. That is because Unlike this country, there's some very striking divides in, you know, who gets to say what and who is talking and while and to bring sort of a poetic voice to that. And to be, again, this formal rigorous makes it unique, let's say. But, you know, in regards to language, another film that is where language and structure are very tied up is The Future Perfect. And I would love to hear what 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 sort of st stood out to you guys, you know, to include that. I have to say it wasn't a film that that struck me particularly. I, I do think, like all the films that I've seen in New Directors, I, I think it belongs here yeah. and it should be here, but it, it's the one that comes closest in my eyes to being a festival film. Uh -huh. um, and when you were talking about Honesty Law, uh, I thought maybe that's what's missing when we talk about a festival film is that we can feel in a festival film that the film has been calculated to go to festivals. It's like there's certain recipes that work for festivals. And I, I don't yeah. want to accuse the future perfect of that because I think there's some real, some nice things in it. But I also sense that it's a film that's very much riding on the fashion for Hong Sang-soo's films, for instance, mm. the, the kind of 
whimsical intersections that can take place in a life. And one thing that really got in my way with The Future Perfect is that it's I've rarely seen such unattractive photography. It, it has a very strange digital washed out look. Mm-hmm. I, I'm it sorry. It does. It's like it's like they just use the raw footage. I I, I really <laughs> I no I remember <laughs> not understanding why mm. it really does a disservice to the film, which has very nice things to speak to it. I mean, yeah. the language side of it is very interesting. The, the, it, it's a it's a young Chinese woman who's a, an emigre in Argentina, and she's te- she's learning to speak Spanish. And as she discovers the different tenses, the possibilities in her life open mm-hmm. up, which is a beautiful idea for for a film. I just feel like the director's execution is not as original as the idea. Mm. I like the film much more than than than, than Nicholas, I would say. Um, but I also feel I feel like as programmers, uh, I, I I don't know that I want to be uh, you know too too down on any of these films. But this is actually a film I I, I do like. I do um, and I don't. This is not one of the the kind of film I think of when I think of a festival film. And I don't think mm. that. And actually, I actually think the more films that are. Uh, inspired by Hong Sang-soo, the better. Yeah. Uh, I f- you know, I feel like he's certainly not somebody who's inspired like a huge following in that regard. Um, I appreciated the the concept as you as you described it. I think it's really it's really lovely in the future perfect. There's a mm-hmm. playfulness and uh, an element of surprise. It surprised me uh, in, in a way that I, I it went in a different direction than I was expecting. I think it transcended, you know, the the sort of the the cuteness and the whim- whimsy of the situation. Yeah, the 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 festival film question is is an interesting one. I feel yeah. like we talk about it a lot when we're, you know, in our committee meetings. Uh, and I, I'm not going to name any names. I feel like there's maybe one or two films in in. I, I won't cite any titles, but I do think there are a couple of films here where I feel like I have probably seen them before in some in in some way. It is hard to make a film that is completely, you know, that comes across as completely original, that is like devoid of like influence or anything like that. But I, I, I uh, we're pretty far along in yeah, history. Yeah, ex- exactly. So it's fine. And, and, and <laughs> I, 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 but I will say that I, I increasingly, you know, I just want to come back to this idea of like these films that have been uh, processed in a way that have have um, gone through. Literally gone through committees, uh, oh, sure. you know, that have literally been through various uh, labs, and you can sense the the fingerprints of you know advisors and consultants in like every every frame and every beat of the film. Uh, you know, there's a certain predictability. If a mm-hmm. film, you know, you you know exactly what's going to happen. You know that it's going to be ambiguous in just exactly the way that these <laughs> kinds of films are ambiguous. Yes. Uh, you know, and uh, I'm struck that we found so many counterexamples. I feel like so mm-hmm. ma- there are so many films in this lineup that do not bear the traces um, of that process. You know, I think of a film like By the Time It Gets Dark, yeah. like by um, Anocha Suichakornpong, a Thai filmmaker, her second film. I cannot imagine that film. Like, you know, how do you, how, how do you, how do you try to streamline that? You know, yeah. in a, in a, in a, in, a sc- in a writing lab. I mean, that film is so completely bold and ambitious in terms of how it deals with its multiple uh, registers, multiple planes of reality. Um, you know, and uh, and they very peach- purpose, very purposefully too. I mean, as you know, in in terms of trying to think about cinema's ability to represent trauma uh, and and history, particularly de- dealing with one very particular national trauma in in this case. Yeah. No, I was going to say the, I think the uh, a Pichapong connection is a bit overstated. Like, I really don't think that aside from the fact that you're sort of moving from these different 
planes and times and you know maybe what is actually happening or what the footage we're actually watching is is i think i really don't think it it really does have that much to do with his work but Know. Yeah, I think that's a fairly superficial connection. Yeah, to, they're both tied. More in mind of uh, Ho Shao Shen's "Good Men, Good Women." Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. there are actually, I think, at least two films in this festival that were made without a screenplay: um, "Autumn, Autumn," mm-hmm. and um, also "Sexy Durger." And it's quite interesting to to see these filmmakers. They just dive into the filmmaking process. And obviously, they have a structure in mind. They have certain things they want to 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 film and to to address. But um, there's a um, whole spirit of um, adventure. It's quite interesting. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned. I knew that about Sexy Durger, but I didn't know that about Autumn Autumn. So I'm doing his Q&A tonight, so um, <laughs> I will ask him about you that. You know what? But, uh, that film's made with 15,000 US dollars. It's interesting, too, because those are two of the most, I think, structurally rigorous films. And mm-hmm. I think you can maybe get away with that if you have like a really strong structural idea and you don't not to not need a screenplay but autumn autumn is another film that like is very clearly i don't know if he he would cop to it but it's like you know it's it's hard not to not to uh, invoke kong sang su it's a korean film that is bifurcated it's it's it literally the title literally appears midway through the film uh it's a beautiful film that explores the theme of um passage of time and um not only that you experience that through those long takes there's this one particular scene. It's a long take of a couple having a meal, and um, it's 13 and a half minute long. It's almost entirely static. And while they're eating, the light from the outside keeps coming in and out. It's completely unplanned. Um, the, the filmmaker told me that he was filming in the restaurant and realized like on the other side, there's this light coming in and out. And then he moved the actors over there. And um, there's just a very spontaneous conversation they have. And it lasts for 13 plus minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, we keep returning to this idea of structural rigor, and which is, which is interesting given, you know, as you say, sort of this tendency for a lot of smaller or independent films to have this maybe looser, more like verite sort of style of uh, framing or approach. I think a film that again sort of flies in the face of that is the challenge uh, it's a it's set in the in emirate right near qatar near qatar yeah where it's like this um it's this very it, it's this very very precise depiction of this uh falconry contest and you see all these guys incredibly wealthy young men you know in their uh ferrari in their private jet on their literally gold motorcycle arriving to the middle of this desert to have this falconry contest. And um, yeah, it's, there's some very striking images in it, um, but I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on it. Stri- beyond striking images, it, it's a film that has images that I've never seen anywhere else or, or anything like them. I mean, mm. it's just from an image point of view, it's utterly riveting. I mean, we have, uh, is it a panther or a leopard? Leopard. Sh- cheetah. Or cheetah, oh. <laughs> So film critics, get your animals right. There's a <laughs> cheetah in the driver's seat of a Porsche, is it? I'm not great it's with like the It's like a car. Ferrari. A yeah. Ferrari. <laughs> so it's not a panther in a Porsche. It's a cheetah in a Ferrari driving through the desert. Yeah. There's a private jet full of falcons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just an... In- 
visually the the idea that these things actually happened like it's the initial shock of cinema in a sense because yeah. it, it has some documentary aspect i found it mind-boggling practically mm -hmm. just from a strictly sensational the from the senses image wise i was ultimately disappointed in the film because it feels very much like a purely aesthetic gesture. I, mm. I think this filmmaker, if I'm not mistaken, is coming from a visual arts background. Yeah. A and it's just too bad because he never really gets into what it is like to be these boys with toys in the desert. Because mm. that's what it is, 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 you know, these very, very rich men in Qatar playing with falcons, playing with cheetahs, playing with Ferraris. And, and there's... For me, it really begs the question: What is going on here? What? Who are these people? You don't, and, you don't, and, but you don't think that it kind of speaks for itself in a way. I'm not sure what I, I, what kind of like you know. The, I feel like the critique is is implicit, you know, right? When you when you are shooting something so absurd, so self evidently absurd. Perhaps that would work if the film's aesthetic carried through. I, I think the film is ultimately aesthetically disappointed. I remember, this is another film I, I saw at Locarno, so forgive me if I'm not super precise, but I remember that there's a scene where they're eating in a tent and he puts the camera in the food, like they're eating mm -hmm. from a... To me, that's that's just absurd. It, it destroys the my trust, so to speak, in in the filmmaking. Similarly, when he actually gets to the film, to the, the falconry contest, he I think he's doing a drone shot. Like there's the way he films the falcons there, is ultimately. Yeah, I think he attached a GoPro to there you the go. falcon. And it, yeah. it, in my eyes, it just doesn't work. Mm. And so, yes, if the film was a pure, very strong aesthetic gesture, great. But it kind of falls somewhere in between with some really successful imagery and some really failed imagery. I also, I looked at my Locarno notes this morning about this film and I found the three words, unforgivable symphonic music. And I do remember now that there's some real um, kind of over-the-top music at some point. So I, I don't, I'm not entirely convinced, though it has indelible images. But I think the film really wants to highlight the excess. It's basically like the trump of the desert. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and uh, it... it it's supposed to look really gross. I mean, it's beautiful, but at the same time, it's gross to look at, and it makes you feel very, it could be upset or uncomfortable, and it's like, what is going on with these people? And uh, But you can also be right. I mean, the, the film could have developed further. If we're speaking purely in terms of images, what is the difference between his approach and, say, the approach of someone who these guys hired to film them, to do loving portraits of them, or something that you might see in a magazine. Like, the aestheticization of something that is, you know, of the wealthy happens all over the place. I mean, I'm not going to say I wasn't totally beguiled by this film, because I was. But ultimately, but again, it's sort of like, in terms of, you know, if it comes down to this question of, like, challenging what they're doing, or, you know, this lifestyle that we could never possibly touch because we are not that we don't have oil money we don't have fuck you i'll bury i'll push you out of an airplane oil money yeah it's just like it's not it's not it's not rigorous in that regard well i i just don't really see how this film has an implicit critique i mean it, yeah. it's just images to show, and and yeah. the images are fascinating but i can imagine that maybe someone very different than me might look at these images and just think 
wow, I, I wish I had a ton of money and could play with cheetahs in the desert. I mean, there's nothing that the filmmaker is saying to say this is right or wrong. And, and I have no problem with that. I think that not carrying judgment is is fine. But mm-hmm. what you said is right, Violet. The film is not rigorous to the end. And that kind of makes the whole project collapse in my eyes. Mm. Yeah, I think having seen some of his short work, you know, I think he's somebody who's very interested in uh, the work. The works are all very, very slick, very stylized, very formalist. Um, you know, and I think this you, this is you can see in the cinematography in this film, it's like ostentatiously like kind of formal, frontal, mm. symmetrical. Mm. Yeah, I don't think he's, I'm not sure what he would have done, you know, what, what he could have done differently uh, given, I, I get if you're saying that the aesthetic doesn't doesn't hold up through the film, but I, I'm not sure if like um, he was setting out to make a critique necessarily. I mean, I read it as like an implicit critique, but mm-hmm. um, I, I, I get that like it doesn't necessarily invite that reading. I actually read it, now that I think about it, as the filmmaker really getting off on what is before his camera. Like to me, I, I sense more of a like, whoa, look at this, this is crazy, and look mm-hmm. what I can do with my camera, and I'm gonna attach a GoPro to this Falcon. And you know, sometimes that works, and sometimes it just doesn't work. But I think what troubles you might also be who this filmmaker is. Whether he enjoys what these people are doing or he's stepping outside. And that's what the honesty I was talking about earlier. At the end of the day, I'd like to think that what troubles me is an aesthetic project not being carried through Mm. properly. And I don't mind what the filmmaker thinks or feels about his subject so long as he is steadfast. And I don't feel that this filmmaker is doing that, so that makes me question his decisions and and start to get into things like, well, is he just, you know, is he another boy with a toy, ultimately, and the toy is a camera? There is definitely this trend to, not just in this festival, but other festivals, this trend of hybrid fusing narrative and documentary elements or sort of fictionalizing lives of people that play themselves in films to what extent do you want to balance that very fresh approach of treating narrative with maybe something that's more that is maybe a more convention not yeah, i want to say a conventional narrative. Or more, more classical yeah more way. classical let's say yeah i think balance is something that we talk about um mm-hmm. maybe towards the end of the process and not in the beginning i think you know we start inviting films in the summer fall um and those are films we just feel strongly about um and at a certain point you realize you know you have a third of the festival in place and half the festival in place and you think about what what it's missing i would say that you know i i'm certainly more interested in unusual like unconventional approaches i do think one thing that does come across is just the sheer number of films that are taking are quite innovative in terms of of narrative you know and Mm -hmm. i think that that comes across as we talked about arabia and by the time it gets dark already but even in a film like the closing night film person to person um dustin guy to face film which i think is is quite an unusual uh stab at the ensemble interlocking narrative film and i think it's it's uh a unique take on that i think uh so i can't speak for everybody on the committee but i think i'm more interested in films that take risks of some sort Mm. but yeah i think uh there are we also well what qualifies as risk i think you know uh, something that's like just departs from this react narrative structure you know or like does something 
fresh and unexpected with uh, a genre. I think you know it's it, a lot. A lot of young filmmakers make coming of age films. I think the number yeah. of coming of age films I see every year is staggering, kind of stupefying. <laughs> Just, um, well, write what you know. Uh, yeah, they come of age, and they now do. they have a And um, I feel like there's this permanent process of yeah. coming of age as being depicted uh, year in year out. Um, but well, I think I will say, last year it was really refreshing to see um, Happy Hour, which is about uh, Mid- not coming. Um, yeah, um, sort of more midlife kind of. Yeah, one yeah. of midlife women, one of the least represented groups on film. It's true. <laughs> it's true. At, represented in that film at great length yes. and in great detail yes. as well. Um, and you know we do have coming of age films in 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 the lineup, and I do think I actually think these are films that special in some way. The summer is gone, uh, and beach rats mm-hmm. could be cons- classified. Uh, and I think in both cases, uh, I think it's the specificity of the films that is surprising and rewarding, uh, and even exciting. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the filmmaking in both films is qu- is, is exciting. But I, this is all just sort of a roundabout way to about your, you know, your question. Um, yeah, I think we do. We do at a, at a certain point. At the last couple of meetings that we have, we think about what's missing, and that could be any number of things. You know, are we do we not have enough from certain regions? The balance. It's primarily fiction films. Uh, certainly some hybrids, but do we have enough documentaries? Yeah, I know a lot of you wanna process just felt very like organic we didn't really talk that much about what kind of films we were looking for we were just going out there watch films and then pick whatever was exciting and it wasn't exactly like this kind of film or that kind and what kind of filmmaking and we did talk about gender balance Mm -hmm. and um the geographical diversity was actually an accident. I don't mm. think you think we ever talked about that, right, Dennis? No, we didn't. But I think I'm I'm very happy with it. I think this is like you know a, a lineup that has you know the usual places represented, like mm-hmm. France and Canada and you know um, whatever. But uh, we have uh, films from all over this year: Cambodia and Nepal mm-hmm. and what well, I India. want to yeah. say about this is that there is nothing unusual about this diversity yeah you know every year end of the year when i see these best films of the year lists i feel a lot of times very disappointed Mm -hmm. because those lists are filled with films from europe and america and usually you see one or two token films from other regions and i think that those lists represent their laziness (laughs) I don't think that there is like an intention to dismiss. It's just laziness. Well, I mean, is but it's sort of a bigger problem, right? I mean, it has to. It comes down to distribution too. I'm not gonna go to bat for somebody who uh, only has a bunch of like white male directors that we've heard of every year since like 1988 on their best like year end list. But ultimately, it is a it is being addressed by festivals like this where you know that can serve as a launching pad where distribution company can be like oh yeah there is an audience for this people are interested in hearing these stories however not everybody gets to see everything and sometimes it is laziness and sometimes it's just like it's not available to them you know well i'm going to i'm going to be devil's advocate and add a third thing about i i too am hardly going to go to bat for you know 
all American, sometimes half studio, top yeah. 10 lists, and that's yeah. not my practice. But I, I think it's fair to recognize, though, that if, if someone is honestly talking about what their favorite films of the year are, it's disingenuous to ignore the fact that language plays a role in that. Mm. My favorite films are often films that are in the two languages that I speak, French and English. And it's, it's yes, you can objectively recognize this film from Taiwan, this film from Argentina is one of the great films of the year. And if I'm putting together an objective top 10 and supposedly saying these are the important films of the year, I'll include them. But the films that really move me that are often the ones that are going to stay with me and that are truly important are ones that I can appreciate on every single level, which includes not reading subtitles but understanding language. This is this is something that I think about a lot because it's not something that comes into conversation very much, and, and mm -hmm. I think it's actually very relevant. Because I will say my enjoyment of The Future Perfect came from, from the language, you know, hearing her speak, you know, and make little mistakes in Spanish and, like, appreciating you know the different people in her class sort of stumble through these situations and like you know her gradual control is like the process of learning a second language as you know and as an adult as someone who is a fully or you know or as a teenager as someone who is a fully basically a fully formed human being and then being reduced to the level of a child like i found that very moving and just like the fact that there are moments in that film where she sort of she's so frustrated and she just starts speaking in Chinese because she's like, she she doesn't even bother to try with, you know, she gets frustrated with her boyfriend who is from India and she just monologues in Chinese and he just has to sit there and stare at her and he can't, he has no idea of what she's saying, but she has to just let it out. And like that I found as funny as the film is, I was like, I know how that feels. And like, you know, just, or, you know, in any relationship, there comes a moment where, you know, you just want to like say what you have to say, but not necessarily let the other person know what you're saying. Like, I, I, I thought that was, you know, those moments were kind of fascinating, but yeah, I, I agree. Language, you know, it is, it is, you can't ignore it. You really can't, or you can't, you're missing some of the flavor sometimes. Well, it's like uh, clearly people all over the world love the films of Arnaud Desplechins, but if you don't speak French, I'm not trying to be elitist here or mm -hmm. anything. It's just, his mastery of language is just a, a whole other extremely important level. It's it's very idiosyncratic. It makes me think of the fact that in his last film, My Golden Days, he has two different actors playing the character of Paul Dédalus, uh, Mathieu Amalric and the young actor Quentin Delmer. These two actors never met before they made the film, and Desplechins asked Quentin Delmer not to watch the previous films that Amalric was in, and yet they're extremely similar in their performances. There's only one way to explain that. That's the language of Arnaud Desplechins. So it's a very idiosyncratic language that is best appreciated if you can understand the words. Mm. We've also gone way off topic, for which I apologize. <laughs> no, it's fine. But it is important to acknowledge, you know, what you were saying, where it's like this wasn't calculated. It wasn't like, oh, we got to check some boxes. It just happened organically where you had this diversity. And it's like, again, obviously the committee put in their work and they went to find these films. And I mean, obviously the people who are programming at Locarno or at Venice are doing their work too and trying to get these, are looking for, you know, outside of continental Europe or America. So hats off. <laughs> at the opening, I was talking to Dennis and I told him that, you know, Dennis, I'm really happy about our selection. I'm even happy for films that I didn't support. <laughs> and I think the... 
collectively, I mean, it, it, the, the whole selection really represents collective wisdom, and mm. I think it is important. It's um, it reflects many different tastes, and and we we are all professionals. I I really trust my colleagues. Um, they I'm sure they are they they are thinking straight. <laughs> Which is not to say that there were not a lot of disagreements uh, in the process. You know, I I think we. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I think there are very few f- titles here that are like completely consensus, you know, picks. They're a handful, but like, I think, uh, I think we're very aware of the pitfalls of really doing anything by committee. And I was just like talking about script committees, but like mm-hmm. programming committees are no better, really. And I mean, I look at this country. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think you you run the risk of um, just coming up with these film yeah, with you know having a lineup that's full of films that nobody minds if you just go by you know consensus mm-hmm. um and i think it was more important for us to really talk about w- titles that were passionate that we were passionate about and we certainly responded more to that even if like you know something i would much rather put in a film that like a couple of people love and a couple of people hate than mm-hmm. a film that everybody thinks it's just okay you mm-hmm. know and i think that's the real danger of 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 working of doing this kind of work um by committee yeah and i think since i'm not on the committee i have the right to say that the the general feeling seems to be that this is a really really good selection of films and mm-hmm. this is a really good year at new directors and perhaps that's why i come off sounding really harsh about something like the future perfect which I, again i don't for a second question that the film belongs here it's just that the films that I've seen, and I've seen about half the selection, I think, are truly idiosyncratic and providing really interesting ways forward mm-hmm. for cinema. Um, you know, we haven't at all talked about The Dreamed Path, for instance. Which or, is wonderful. Or a short film called The Blue Devils, which is a, a, a world premiere here, actually, which yeah. is really exciting. So this, this is just a great year, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, I think we're... And the Dream Path is something we talked about whether or not to include because Angela Shanalek is not exactly a new filmmaker. I think this is her seventh film. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she is somebody who's had little to no recognition in the U.S. I mean, MoMA did a Berlin School uh, retrospective a few years ago. They included two of her films. But outside of that, almost no exposure. I think she's one of the most important German filmmakers of her generation. Many younger German filmmakers would, would acknowledge that as well. And it seemed to fit the spirit of the program. You know, I think it's it's a film that really thinks about narrative in a, in, in a very exciting way. Yeah. And I think jumping onto that as far as the spirit of the program, if one had to do the hackneyed thing of talking about what is a kind of general theme at the film festival this year, there are a lot of films that are dealing with history and they're dealing with history in extremely innovative ways, whether it's the dream path or the Thai film by the time it gets dark. Um, that, that really stuck out for me, Arabia in its own way, Mm -hmm. the blue devils. Yeah. We can end it there, but before we do, it would be great if we could go around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked. Well, I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to be ahead. boring and go ahead and say that uh, I, I spotted an Almodovar box set at a friend's house, and I'd been craving revisiting his films, because I, I think I've seen everything he's done, but the films when they came out and never seen them again, and I just... I watched all about my mother, mm-hmm. and I have to say that it's a stone-cold masterpiece, and that was really pleasant. I have not been watching too many films lately. <laughs> 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 
Yes, I, I, I'm moderating about 10 Q&As in this festival. But I did watch a film, I think two days ago. Mm. I sneaked out to watch something else. Get Out. <laughs> it's so much fun and it's hilarious. And people were laughing in a the theater. And it's very, very smart and brilliant film. It has everything you should like. I, this is yeah. I I was I have I have watched a lot of films in the Berlin Film Festival. The highlight of the Berlin Alpha for me was a suite of four films by uh, the German experimental filmmaker Heinz Emigholz. Mm. And I believe you've seen this since you were yes. working on, or the, the uh, we are including two of them in the upcoming Art of the Real. Uh, and I think um, the sort of cornerstone film in this series, uh, which is called Streetscapes. The film itself is called Street Streetscape Bracket Dialogue, uh, is uh, a remarkable film. I think it's, Emmy Holtz is known for his architectural films, uh, and this is a film... In a very literal way. Yeah, not literally, just sort of, he's, he's yeah. Uh, films that are about buildings. He has a series called Architecture's Autobiography, puts a, a new spin on that idea of Architecture's Autobiography. It's based on his uh, conversations with uh, an analyst, a trauma specialist, over mm -hmm. five days, uh, and that conversation has been edited down uh, and is uh, performed uh, by two actors as they stand in front of these buildings, which are shot uh, in typical Amicult style. Uh, I think it's a really interesting film, and we're showing it here uh, next month. Mm -hmm. And I'll, to close, I'll bring up a film that I saw, Viejo Calavera, which is a film by Kiro Russo, which is showing at, it's also going to show here uh, later this month as part of Art of the Real. It is set in this small Bolivian mining town. And uh, it's about this guy who's just, I mean, he's, 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 he's orphaned and just kind of fuck up. He's just always like drunk or high and getting into trouble. And he's sent to live with his uncle in this small um, mining town. And like formally, it's very interesting the way the story is structured and just like, I mean, I can't get sort of the beginning of the film out of my mind where his grandmother is like wailing for him to come home because he's wandered off into like a cave or something. And it's it, it's shot and like it's just shot in a really marvelous way. And it's just very unique. And um, it could have been in New Directors. It's so good. But anyway, Indeed, it could have. Thank you all for coming. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odemark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs> <laughs>